Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today we're doing something a bit different. I've got Brian Ventura here. Brian is actually the co-founder of the pod. He does a lot of work behind the scenes. Brian is also a lawyer specializing in blockchain and Web3. We start the discussion looking at the events surrounding Tornado Cash. What is it and why was it sanctioned? And the downstream effects of platform-level censorship, along with freedom of expression and how open source code fits in. Then we dive into the merge, which I think is the biggest crypto story of the year. We talk about some of the history of proof of work transitioning to proof of stake Ethereum and what people are expecting afterwards. We wrap up with a shout out to Roger Veer and Zuckerberg's Metaverse. I hope you enjoy this first of our roundtable episodes. Uh, all right, Brian, welcome to the show. Good to uh, get you on across the table here. Uh, and kind of what we're going to say, I guess, is our first roundtable format. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, so I got two on the list, two main ones on the list for us today. One I've been following quite closely for a long time now. The merge is coming up. I just loaded up the countdown, so we're less than eight days away from the merge. And so I thought we'd come to that one second and maybe open with something that really cropped up and hit hard about three weeks ago. And since then has fallen off. You know how the news cycle goes. If you can last more than a few days, it's a major story. And that is this tornado cash, massive banning uh, and sanctioning that has been going on. So just, I guess, a quick, maybe, uh, hey, hey, Jeff, what, what is tornado cash? Well, uh, tornado cash is a mixer service for Ethereum. And what it does is it allows people to deposit some of their either Ether or USDC or DAI. I think it only takes those three coins to deposit their coins into this contract. And then at some time later on, um, they're, well, they're issued a receipt when they deposit it. And then at some time in the future, they can use the receipt to redeem the coins that they deposited. And once the redemption occurs, the transaction history um, of that event is is lost or has been mixed up with all of the others that are um, kind of like tumbling around in the pool. So I've heard a few analogies. One is just like a giant bingo mixer drum where you're drawing out balls. So if all of the deposits are the same amount or are all numberless, you don't know that the one you took out was your original one that you put in or if it was someone else's. And the contract severs the link between that moment in time when you deposited and when you're withdrawing from the contract. And so as a mixing, you know, as a service, it's providing privacy for users who want to start with a fresh address. Um, it can be as simple as donating money to a charity where you don't want the charity to be able to look at your past history or paying for something with a friend uh, or someone else uh, that, again, you don't want to see your past history. Uh, can be a bit more serious. For example, maybe your employer is paying you in some sort of crypto asset, right? And uh, then we can get into talking about, you know, how much of a right does your employer have to see the transaction history based on the address that you're asking them to pay you with. So people were using it for this, and also they were using it for some uh, nefarious or darker purposes. Um, and so I guess that's that's the idea of a mixer: tumble some coins pull them out, and you can't see any of the previous history. So in terms of, let's just maybe, uh, let's just maybe start off with what, what happened. Um, 
I've got here just a list of some of the people and repositories that were banned. So straight up the website got taken down. Um, there was a ban or the, the repository on GitHub got removed. And so if you go to that link, it still is returning a 404 error. There's nothing there. Um, one of the co-founders had his own personal GitHub also removed. Uh, so the same thing, you get a blank page when you go there. Um, uh, this person's name is Roman Semenov, and uh, they do have an active Twitter account and have been tweeting about this exclusively in the past few weeks. Um, and then another person involved has turned up in jail in the Netherlands. Uh, and that is, a, that is about all that we know at, at this point. So maybe I'll just pass it to you. What do you think about all this? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And we've got here some other things, like some of the issues. But yeah, OFAC has, has um, taken an interest in in Tornado Cash for its own reasons. And um, I, I think a lot of it is probably due to how it can facilitate money laundering um, or terrorism financing or um, evading sanctions. Um, but actually the beauty about public blockchains like Ethereum is um, all, of, all of those transactions are um, viewable um, by anyone and there are um, third party um, service providers who do on-chain analytics um, like Chainalysis. And I, um, yeah, preparing for this, I read this report, Chainalysis saw maybe about 17% or about 17 to 20% of transactions on Tornado Cash were related to sanctions or money laundering, um, which is not insignificant, but also it has led to 80% of transactions which are legitimate, like donations, uh, now not being able to use the service. Um, so it, there's a lot of uh, unintended downstream consequences, unfortunately, by this. What is uh, OFAC? They're, they're one of many regulatory agencies based in the U.S., um, Nothing is um, legal advice, but um, from what I understand, they're the, um, the equivalent of the Financial Markets Authority here in New Zealand or the Department of Internal Affairs. And yeah, they, I, I think we can probably look at it as well with the, a lot of the US sanctions on, on Russian uh, interests, um, kind of reading between the lines and looking at some of the names who've been imprisoned there, there seems to be a connection to that as well yeah some standard profiling here can tell you where these gentlemen have originated from or where they might have ties to okay so ofac operating in the united states so i mean just i was going to ask this later but just as a general idea here like how much influence do these agencies in the united states have sort of worldwide in the global village aspect of things trickling all the way down to New Zealand's, uh, perhaps the DIA, like you mentioned, or uh, the FMA here? U.S. regulators, U.S. policy has a lot of impact um, on most countries around the world, um, including New Zealand, because we all participate in a financial system, which is 
primarily operated by U.S. financial institutions, and those U.S. institutions are regulated by the U.S. government and U.S. agencies. Um, and so if we want to participate in that financial system, we need to comply essentially with U.S. regulations and policies. For example, uh, if we wanted to use the, our banking system and we, if we wanted to, um, let's say, open a bank account and we're known to be a crypto asset business, I've seen examples where New Zealand banks have been reluctant to offer me a bank account, hypothetically, because um, those New Zealand banks have correspondent relationships with U.S. banks, and those U.S. banks have a policy of not facilitate of not allowing crypto assets transactions with any correspondent partners like New Zealand banks. Right. So there, they're very clearly putting the relationship with the overseas bank first, uh, yeah. either either in front of potential customers here, or you know even in a sort of darker scenario, uh, at the limitation of any innovation that they could have by working around it and, and, and doing it here. That's right. I mean, what do you think as well? I mean, Jeff, like Circle, for example, it's a centralized stablecoin regulated in the US. And then there's risks of it essentially turning off any transactions linked to Tornado Cash. What, yeah, what so, do you think? I mean, yeah, USDC, it, a lot of these things seem to have grown so fast. Uh, I guess in the beginning, there was DAI and Tether, uh, and then USDC came along and said, we're going to play by the rules you know, in America, and I guess alongside with Coinbase, although Circle is a separate entity. And thus far, they've done extremely well, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like, a big party for everyone, and you go, oh, well, you, you use USDC once, and you use it twice, and it works fine, and uh, it does what it says on the tin, but then I guess one day the music stops, and you know maybe you were experimenting with this new thing you saw on Twitter called Tornado Cash. Um, the contracts in their present form have been finalized for two over two years now, uh, and so maybe back in March or April or May, around then in 2020, uh, is when the contracts, in terms by finalized, I mean uh, the functionality to upgrade them had been removed. So that that was it. They were kind of like they were pushed out there, uh, and they said, "Okay, if you want to use it, here it is. If not, go build something else uh, or use another service." And so maybe at that time you were a bit curious, and you decided to send some of your USDC. So the contracts are tiered. So the way it works is you have to do it in orders of magnitude. So you can send like. Um, I don't know what the smallest USDC one was, but maybe $10. Of course, you have to factor in your fees as well, but you could send like 10 or 100 or 1,000 or $10,000 to the contract, and then you can pull out the same amount. So you can't send any amount you want, and that's another privacy another privacy thing there. You know, if you send 777.77, that can be very recognizable to someone running the analytics in, in the future. Um, Anyway, so maybe you sent $10 and you were just curious about what was happening with Tornado Cash. Uh, and so then you wait a while, you know, again, a privacy thing. If you withdraw straight away, then you could link the back and forth action based on based on timestamps. So you want to wait until maybe some other people are um, using it as well. And you withdraw your 10 bucks and you completely forget about it. 
and you go away and you buy some other tokens, and then two years later, you read the news that Tornado Cash is in some hot water, and suddenly, you know, your USDC address that you've been using for over two years in any capacity, suddenly that's, it shows up on a list. And, and like this idea to me is like the really nefarious part of all of this. And part of it is the problem with the blockchain itself because all the history is there. But there's a very massive risk here for anyone uh, dealing in any crypto assets or any blockchain activity that the regulations can change in the future. And then suddenly the activity that you undertake today, um, you know, you end up on a blacklist or it becomes illegal uh, or any assets associated with that address are now are now frozen. And in this extreme instance, in this like contemporary right now time, uh, I mean, this, I think to me, is something that cannot be overemphasized uh, in the least. The, the idea that you could, uh, ki it's, it's kind of like being charged with, it's kind of like the rules the rules change and the goalposts shift and you get charged with a crime in the past when laws were different you know like i'm not too sure where we stand on criminal activity um you know in terms of the letter of the law with how this is being played out but you could imagine a scenario where that's that's how this ends up yeah it's it's scary and your example reminds me of um actually vitalik <laughs> is, is someone who's caught up in this he admitted um, using Tornado Cash a while back for make for making a donation. Um, yeah, what, what do you think about that? If he's somehow, you know, held liable for, for using it two years ago, right? So the <laughs> uh, the idea that I guess this brings up the the idea that your address also is a stand-in for your identity, and so your wallet address that turns up in this program on this blockchain is now we're going to turn the pointer around and point it back and say, well, now this address represents Vitalik, you know, which is clearly absurd. Um, Vitalik, you know, can have many different identities and, uh, you know, and he does. If you, if you followed along with what he's been up to, you know, all of us have, have many different identities between our personal and professional lives and otherwise. Uh, we might have a pseudonymous online life. We might have an anonymous on, online life. Um, which I'm fine with and I uh, think is an important thing that people should be allowed to choose to do so if, the, if they want. Um, yeah, and so when Vitalik put up his hand and said, well, actually, I used it to donate some, some crypto uh, to the war effort, right? Uh, I think a lot of people probably had to pause and go, oh, that's a great, that's a great reason. <laughs> that's right. Um and then there was the other thing where uh, someone was dusting accounts. You you see this I as saw well, that. Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, so yeah. like like these you know these big accounts, these celebrities, um, which the, I guess the popular way that they're known these days is by their Twitter handle ENS um, advertisement. Uh, so the Ethereum name service you can you can link like a like a address to your like a web human readable address to your Ethereum address, and so people. I guess like Jimmy Fallon, right? He has a he has an ape or some something like, or he probably has many. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, because they have a public address, then anyone is free to spam that address if you're willing to pay the fees. And uh, you know, this has happened to Vitalik as well, right? He received like half of 
all the Shiba Inu in existence. <laughs> uh, and he had to like stop what he was doing. The story's, the story's pretty funny because it's like a classic uh, tale of crypto UX problems. But uh, he had to like, he had to like, he wanted to burn it, right? He didn't want to give the the Shiba any value. I think it was Shiba. It might have been one of the lesser dog coins. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so because it was sent to his wallet, he didn't want people looking at it and being like, oh, Vitalik has a bunch of this. I'm going to buy some too, which is obviously terrible financial uh, <laughs> financial planning. Uh, so Vitalik had to like call up his family in Canada and uh, get them to find the piece of paper that half of his key was written on. Uh, and like read it out and he might have even like split it up over different calls or something like that so that it wasn't all in one session uh, so that he so that he could then burn the the Shiba. And so I don't know what Jimmy Fallon has done with his 0.1 ETH. Uh, that's no small amount, right? That's a couple hundred bucks US. Um, but it just, I guess, shows the immaturity and the potential absurdity that we're, that we're getting into here. Um, so let me get you to put on your your not legal advice but uh, legal hat, <laughs> and uh, and I want to get your take on the specific bans here. So they banned a list of addresses. One of the addresses, or a bunch of the addresses, go to the contracts. So Ethereum is an account-based system, and that means you're issued an address, which is a string of characters, and that address can be used like a wallet to hold your coins, mm. or that address can be used to hold smart contract code. And you can, uh, just like you can send your coins around, you can publish a contract code and it's you find it by using the address identifier. Uh, and so in the list of addresses, right, this is not just identities that they have seen interacting with Tornado Cash, you know, which maybe by some other analytics methods they have known to sort of come out of North Korea or something like that. Yeah. So it's not just that, but they went a step further and actually said, well, this is where the code lives. And we're going to now ban uh, this address, which I guess by association bans anyone that uses that address as well. The thing with the specific thing with that is that there's nobody there. You know, it, it, it's like calling up the CEO of Bitcoin, like good luck finding them, right? There's there's nobody there anymore. And there's there's proof on the blockchain that the keys to modify the contract uh, have been uh, have been burnt or have uh, it's been made so that nobody, no other humans can modify the code. And so they mm. they kind of just took a basket of these contracts and said, all right, well, now this stuff is banned. And then I guess they took a bunch of individual addresses now, I don't actually know if it is to do with the North Korea hacking stuff, but definitely in the early days in the news, that was the headline, is that um, that was the reasoning behind it. So I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about this idea of banning a piece of essentially open source software compared to banning a digital identifier that could represent somebody. Uh, I mean... If if I had to, if we had to bet, let's say one ETH, the smart money is on this getting. Hopefully, this gets challenged on many constitutional grounds, right? Just out of out of intellectual curiosity, I'm keen to see how this plays out. Um, yeah, banning code 
it, it makes me think about, I, I read online that, because I guess people are concerned about the US Constitution, the First Amendment, how um, there's um, freedom of speech. And I read there's a US judgment called Bernstein, which recognizes that um, open source code or code in general can be protected by the First Amendment. Um, and that means um, it has the same protection as any other kind of original work like music, art, uh, film. Um, and so I, I can definitely see that principle, that legal principle from Bernstein being considered here in any challenge. Uh, the question about whether you can even sanction, even even blacklist code, yeah, I mean, the internet, been looking at the internet, it seems like there's a lot of uncertainty on that, on whether OFAC had legal grounds to do that. Um, because, yeah, you're, you're right, they've conflated um, putting blacklisting the people behind Tornado Cash and also <laughs> blacklisting the code itself. Um, and then what the, the result of blacklisting is anyone who engages with a person who's blacklisted, um, they call that an S being on the SDN list, Right. Um, is going to breach sanctions laws in the US. Um, and that's how they've tried to, that's, yeah, that's how they've tried to maneuver this situation, this being OFAC. Um, I'd be, I'd be interested to see, I'm interested to see any US constitutional lawyer looking at whether code could even be on a blacklist. Um, and then I guess you had a question about um, retrospective, retrospectivity. And yeah, yeah, if the laws change and I did something in the past. Move, moving goalposts. Um, I, I can't talk about US law. I'm not a US lawyer, but in New Zealand, we had the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, and um, we had the equivalent of the First Amendment. Um, it's the right to freedom of expression, um, but there's also a right um, that any criminal proceedings, um, that uh, you're not subject to um, retrospectivity, which is you can't be criminally liable for something that was legal or not illegal when you committed the act. Um, so at least in New Zealand, you know, the developers, the team could have that, um, that protection. Yeah, that seems like a very sensible way to, I mean, it would just be so messy otherwise in many, not, not even just this case, right? But um, uh, in, in anything in the legal net of, of when, when the rules change. Um, but you do get this feeling, uh, I mean, I guess I get this feeling that uh, OFAC and the Treasury are really trying to make an example uh, of someone at some place. Um, I mean, you mentioned that figure 17% from Chainalysis. I mean, that seems absurdly high. Like, uh, all I, I don't know. I haven't I haven't read that piece, but all if you think about like exchange volume, right? It's like notorious for being washed or you know just being juggled around to inflate volume. And I, I mean, 17% sounds extremely high, although the point still stands that the other uh, three quarters, uh, the other four fifths, it's still uh, deemed to be legitimate activity. So the feeling to me is that they want to make an example of, the, of these people. 
and I guess the Dutch are playing along. Did you read that CoinDesk story? Uh, what do I have here? CoinDesk, yeah. So, so again, obviously the Netherlands is a completely other jurisdiction, but like, imagine going to jail for three months because you published some code two years ago. Uh, now they they do say in there that there's like potential ties to other things, but uh, you know, I guess after watching a few too many Hollywood storylines, all I can think is like, how easy would it be to say that somebody is tied to some activity, especially if you have a large online footprint? Yeah, it's scary. And um, it it just reminds me of a lot of web entrepreneurs, pioneers like Kim.com and and his team behind uh, Mega Upload um, being subjected to... um, yeah, just uh, quite onerous um, restraints on their freedom. Um, and it's, I guess, when you look at it from a macro point of view, it's um, the, the danger of this new internet economy we're building um, because uh, it's very easy to build um, software now and, you know, for it to scale quite rapidly. Um, and sometimes... Um, good intentions and good good intentions behind a code can can be used in um, in ways that you hadn't foreseen or intended. Um, and I th- I genuinely believe that the Tornado Cash team had you know genuine intentions behind the um, their protocol. Um, <laughs> and it, it's just I guess yeah it, it is a bit worrying if you're a, if you're a developer um, if you know, you could be imprisoned years down the line, even after you've walked away from your project. Yeah, it's tremendously worrying. And uh, from a Bitcoiner point of view, right, the the danger here is that nobody's going to want to jump in and uh, really take up that torch and get into Bitcoin development. And, you know, if people stop maintaining software, well, software stagnates and something else takes its place and grows up to fill the void. And so I guess we've seen this with Bitcoin devs that are not synonymous and, you know, have, you know, especially by that Australian dude, they've been served by his lawyers uh, up and down over the last, over the last couple of years, um, you know, because they, well, I guess there's a, there's a variety of reasons, but basically because he wants to claim control of, of this piece of open source, open source software. And so like, I mean, my heart goes out to these people who are like, who are like, I guess, a little bit cypherpunk and like very talented and like just want to do something. And like ultimately, most of these people are volunteering as well. Uh, you know, they're not they're not doing this for big payouts, big paydays. They're doing it because they're curious. And, you know, perhaps that will lead to payouts in the future. But definitely not if you're known to be the dude that sat in jail for three months uh, without charge. Um, and so... Do, do we think things are getting better in the landscape or are things getting worse? Like if, if this is a, a marker, uh, are we look, are things looking up or not? Or what, how do you feel, how are you feeling? Yeah, you make a really interesting point. You know, it, it may be that, you know, developers will be paid a, a risk premium um, if they're going to build any kind of, any kind of code that can, you know, that is at risk of, of um, future government interest, government sanction. Um, I do have to say, though, um, I can see 
just from the Financial Action Task Force, their guidance for virtual assets and virtual asset service providers that um, they are keenly keenly interested in projects which facilitate um, anonymization, um, which I think they, you know, Tornado Cash would probably fall under that bucket. Um, And you probably already know the Financial Action Task Force, FATF for short, they're kind of like the global standard setter for money laundering and terrorism financing regulations. Um, And they have member countries around the world, US, New Zealand included, which um, essentially craft their regulations to meet FATF standards. Um, And FATF in particular, they have given, given guidance on virtual assets and they say that any kind of project which um, creates decentralized applications, um, you know, whether it's a DeFi protocol or a, a Tumblr, um, they would arguably be caught by um, money laundering regulations. And that would mean they have to do KYC on their customers. They have to maintain um, AML documentation. They have to report anything suspicious to their local regulator. Um, essentially be regulated like banks and other um, trade-fi institutions. Um, And so actually what I see from this is it's probably, hopefully it'll lead to a little more regulatory clarity because, you know, my job as a lawyer is finding out whether a a Web3 project is caught by money laundering regulations or not. and um, if it is caught, then there's a lot of compliance, a lot of frictions with their business. So um, hopefully this will lead to a little more clarity out of the US, which I think will filter down to everywhere like New Zealand. Yeah, this idea, I, I tend to agree with you that the net benefit here is is that this... Uh, use case or this idea or this niche will be taken into consideration for, you know, whatever the next the next round of systemic updates are. I, I do tend to agree with that, uh, although you do wonder if perhaps, I definitely wonder if perhaps uh, crypto is just largely incompatible uh, with, with this idea of, you know, spinning up more regulations and having, uh, I guess, an, an increased net to capture the baddies that are washing their money, that that sort of thing. Um, so uh, that's the that's the the Bitcoin skeptic in me. <laughs> and you know, as soon as as soon as I hear like North Korea and like hackers that like use Tornado Cash to wash a couple billion dollars, I'm like, who I'm like who cares? How how big is how big is the world money laundering economy? Like, do do you know like do you know the scale of some of these some of these figures? Um, I, I've seen figures that say the amount of money laundering through public blockchains is still a fraction of what's happening um, through traditional finance, TradeFi. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's the case because we're dealing with um, public blockchains which are, you know, f- fully immutable and transparent. Um, do you remember that 
uh, there was a, there were a bunch of hacks last year, and um, the hackers couldn't actually um, cash out their their um, their winnings, so to speak, because um, all of their transactions on chain uh, were being tracked. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know specifically what one you're f referring to, but there's like tons of good stories like that. Yeah, so if, you're, if your hack is uh, visible and well-known to the community immediately, uh, then all of those addresses are going to get tracked. And no matter what you do, they're going to continue. It's like the, uh, it's going to be like a like red dye following you, following you around no matter what you do. And so I guess sometimes you see then the hackers will like raise their hand and politely request to refund <laughs> the the stolen loot after that and say, uh, maybe maybe publish a, a short message saying I was just, uh, you know, doing uh, penetration <laughs> testing on your on your smart contracts. They're a white hat. Yeah, that, that's right. The color of my hat changes. Okay, so maybe one question to wrap this uh, topic up. Uh, where do you stand? What do you think is code speech? I would like to think so. Um, I'm not, not a copyright lawyer, uh, but I know enough to be dangerous. Um, code is copyright under New Zealand law, for example. Um, and code, you know, captures the essence of, of speech, you know, quote unquote speech. And so I'd like to think that, you know, the principles of Bernstein in the US um, apply here in New Zealand um, and code will have, you know, um, constitutional protections under the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act. Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think that we are never going to exist in a world without code ever again. Uh, it's one of the m prime education at a young age drivers these days. Uh, even if you're not sort of technically minded, yeah, we want everyone to learn to code a little bit and it starts at a young, young age. Uh, and so I think that in that sense, we need to really envelop it into what we already have in terms of being able you know, to have this freedom of expression, whatever that, whatever that may be. Um, now, I don't think that you should be, um, I don't think you should be immune from any consequences, but definitely I do think that you should be allowed to publish some stuff on GitHub uh, and then, you know, let the, let the market or let the world or let the hackers figure out if it's any good and, and what to do with it. And, and yeah, like this code isn't going back in the box, right? Uh, the, the reposit, this specific repository has already been like copied and archived and forked. And, and that's, that's just one, one main example, but any code that is, that is any good, uh, is, is never going away. And, uh, maybe, maybe a related topic here is the absolute explosion in AI art that has hit social media lately with programs like Stable Diffusion and DALI being able to take prompts and generate art uh, in this like phenomenally artistic way that uh, a lot of humans wouldn't be able to tell the difference between human-generated digital art, you know, that an artist actually uh, ideated and drew, and something that another human prompted an AI to produce. And then there you are, you're, you're comparing two things and so definitely there's going to be some overlap 
both in terms of copyright and like expression, you know, art, music, creatives and stuff like this. Uh, well, there's no reason why code can't fit into those boxes. And uh, I mean, I also don't know much about the ins and outs of copywriting, but if you can, if you consider uh, that the written, the written novel or uh, you know the online blog post is speech, right? Then you can easily draw lines through all these other things. So uh, this stuff's not going back in the box. Um, you know, just like PGP, pretty good privacy and encryption, never went back in the box when the U.S. tried to do what it could back in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s to try to limit the strength of encryption for their own benefit. Um, so we're just going to have to live with the consequences and, and work around it. Yeah, I I agree. I think we kind of I think of, think of the same thing, which is um, there should be that kind of that freedom, that freedom to write code, and a lot of code will be used for you know positive, life changing things, um, which will benefit the marketplace, and then it's up to regulations to, I guess, um, set some boundaries to prevent some of the really nefarious things. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely with AI as well, that's probably a whole nother topic. But yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to completely um, delegalize AI. Um, I think it should just be regulated in a constructive way. Yeah, that's a, that is a, a whole other topic, especially when you get talking about weapons that are uh, being driven by AI and things like that. But maybe one last point here uh, is that, uh, you know, GitHub, the very organization that had to play by OFAC's rules and take down these repositories, right? GitHub has created Copilot and pushed it out in the last year. And Copilot is an AI coding assistant. So you, you, can, type, you can type in, I should try it. I don't know what happens if you type in build a mixing service, right? But you, you can you could type in, I want to create uh, a login authentication service, and Copilot will suggest you 10 or 12 lines of code that can do that function for you. Um, and of course, they've built that AI based on all this open source submission that people have uploaded to their own website. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're probably getting into the weeds a bit here. Um, maybe, we, maybe we should climb out. Have you been, <laughs> have you been following the, the merge? Where are you on... Uh, on ETH 2.0, now called uh, the merge. The merge, yeah. Didn't it, didn't it evolve from ETH 2.0 to Casper to now it's the merge? Um, yeah, I've been holding my ETH um, for years. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I don't hold enough to be a staker. Um, but I'm, I'm excited. I think it's at this scale, like Ethereum is yeah like you know the global smart contract network um it, you know it it holds all of the key major DeFi protocols all of the major nft projects um and then yeah all of the ice like all of the major icos and erc20 tokens are on ethereum um massive existential risk if it doesn't go well but uh, what do you think? It seems like the testing has been positive. The testing has been positive for sure. I mean, you 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 highlighted there um, one of the major the the major risk, right? And that's because all of these NFT projects, all of these DeFi protocols, right, all of these stable coins, 
um, you know, it's Tornado Cash. It seems like everything runs on ETH, and if it doesn't run on ETH, it runs on an EVM compatible blockchain, and people are just waiting to push it to an ETH Ethereum layer two. Um, so definitely Ethereum is the gorilla in the room, and I mean, this whole this whole experiment it's coming to an, it's coming to an end soon, right? Seven days. And 20 hours, I better get this podcast published quick or that timestamp is going to be out of date. But uh, this, is, this is like the end of a seven-year project, which is almost Ethereum's entire life. Um, so maybe just uh, misconception number one is that Ethereum <coughs> developers woke up one day and looked at the social landscape and decided that Ethereum also uses too much electricity. So let's switch uh, to a system that doesn't use so much electricity. Um, and of course, that's not the way it happened. This has always been the game plan from the very beginning, is to bootstrap Ethereum using proof of work. Uh, and the basis there is that we could look at Bitcoin. So this is uh, 2014, right? You could look at Bitcoin and see its early success using proof of work. And so if you want to start a blockchain, well, that's going to be what you're going to do. And so they, they made some tweaks at that time. Um, Bitcoin was already unminable out of your basement. So you already had to have uh, ASIC hardware at that stage in Bitcoin's proof of work history. And so they looked at this and they decided, well, you know, we don't want it to go down that path, which has a predictable end game, which we're seeing now, which is like massive mining pool, uh, pseudo centralization. Uh, and so they developed a new proof of work algorithm called ETHash, which uses GPUs. And so your your ASIC miner doesn't need any memory in it. It doesn't need uh, like, you know, two gigabytes of RAM or anything in that all it's doing is pure calculation and then uh, just a quick check with the difficulty level to see if your block is good. And so Ethereum came along and said, well, let's, you know, Looking, looking back, it didn't work, but they, they wanted to make it again available to everyone to be able to mine ETH mm. um, by using the <clears throat> graphics card in their computer. Uh, and so they created a new proof-of-work algorithm. Uh, and at the same time, they put into the code this thing called the difficulty bomb, which I just think is one of the most terrific things since uh, maybe since Satoshi's difficulty adjustment. <laughs> um, so the, I mean, the, the difficulty bomb now... Uh, critics and skeptics are like, oh, they just have been delaying the difficulty bomb, which they have been. I think it's been pushed back five times. <coughs> but the idea of the difficulty mm. bomb is beautiful. It's that the mining network difficulty is going to tick up exponentially if you don't do anything about this change to go from proof of work to proof of stake. So that's been the motivation for the last seven years. And, uh, you know, Vitalik hilariously in all of the memes about uh, him being old and gray, waiting for proof of proof of stake Ethereum, uh, he's you know admitted that it's taken way longer and it's been way harder than anyone has imagined. So, uh, as a like technologist, I love the Ethereum merge because they're doing something really hard. They don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, it's been a long-term plan. You know, it's taken uh, six or seven years to get all this code into place. And so to go back to your question, you said, well, what about the test networks that have gone well? Uh, and they have gone well. So uh, a year ago, last November, they launched the Beacon Chain. 
which doesn't really do anything, but it's an important part of future Ethereum, and so it ticks along alongside Ethereum. And uh, so now we have test networks that are working with the beacon chain, uh, fully functioning test networks running proof of stake. The latest earlier this month is called Gurley. Uh, it's a German name, and I forget what it means, but anyways, I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> um, and so that was that was the last major hurdle, and that just happened in early August. And they ironed out any kinks from that real quick, which meant that they could announce the date for the merge, which is now up and coming. Um, and so uh, you can run a validator on Gurley. You can do testnet transactions on there. You can uh, do your development code and fire to Gurley and see how the proof of stake network handles it. Uh, of course, it's all in theory, right? We don't know until it happens what types of wrenches are gonna get thrown into the system. Uh, but it looks like, it looks like it's gonna work. And it, I mean, it's gonna be so interesting to see. It's supposed to, the whole thing should just tick over one block to the next. Mm. So once the total difficulty level is reached, that's you know um, a proof of work term. Once that's reached, the very next block should be run on the proof of stake system. And so the latency, there should be none. It should be 12 seconds to the next block. Uh, and, then, and then that'll be it and everyone will be like holding their breath. Um, <laughs> And and watching the watching the markets to see what happens for twelve seconds <laughs> uh, to to see how that goes. So I'm 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 super bullish. Uh, I'm very keen to see how how this well how this upgrade goes, but also how the next upgrade goes. So I guess misconception number two is that um, is that ETH is going to get faster mm -hmm. and. This also came up with the last upgrade, um, which had to do with the fee structure. And ETH got a touch faster then, but it was inadvertent. And so ETH is not gonna get any faster after the transition, but the next upgrade should dramatically improve ETH's performance. You're talking about sharding. And so, yeah, I'm talking about, I'm talking about sharding, but that again is down the track. You know. The devs can only do, I guess, <laughs> so much at one time. They can only respond to so many posts on Twitter at once. Uh, and so that is up and coming. And that also looks to be, looks to be quite exciting. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why is because of, the, because of the risk associated, like you mentioned, because everyone has real value, real time invested in this network, all these projects are, are using it. Mm -hmm. uh, it spawned an entire industry, the idea of Solidity smart contract code. And uh, you know, if there's, if there's a major break, well, I guess there could be opportunity here for some of the other chains to step in and uh, eat some of that, some of that market share. Um, anyways, I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I think as well, yeah, Ethereum's not going to get any faster. Um, I also read that the transaction fees, which has been kind of prohibitive for some, including me, um, aren't going to get cheaper. They are or not? Oh, they're not. They're not going to get cheaper. So, yeah. so the, the fee structure uh, is tied directly to performance. Mm. So... Um, fees in a blockchain system, you're basically, it's an auction, it's a live auction for block space. So if you want to get 
your message, if you want to get your coin transfer, your NFT, if you want to get it into a block, you have to bid against other people. Uh, and in times of high activity, like when there's a hot NFT mint, so the last one on my radar was the other side land mint by uh, Yuga Labs. Uh, and this threw the fee structure absolutely crazy for a few hours, I think maybe half a day. Yeah. Ethereum was essentially offline to anyone that didn't have a couple thousand dollars to push through as a transaction fee. And that's because they're bidding against other people that also want to mint their land in the same NFT drop. And so that has nothing to do with the performance of Ethereum, it has nothing to do with the fee structure. That's just your pure market economics, uh, is that if it's really busy, you can charge more. Uh, and then that's what they do. And sort of, I guess one of the best analyses I saw of that event was that not to think of Ethereum as broken because you know you couldn't send your $10 USDC to Tornado Cash that day, mm. but to think of it as, um, from the other point of view, is that Ethereum over that weekend had a like $100 million client uh, come in and spend all this money and that those fees go straight to the miners, mm. right? And so, um, and that was a wild success for it. So that's, you know, a success story. Like uh, maybe if you're a retailer during the high season, during Christmas sales or something like that. Um, but having said that, you're right, fees, fees on Ethereum are absorbent. And when we had... Uh, when we had sort of last year, there was an NFT blast months at a time. You couldn't do much on Ethereum for less than like $25, $30. And that was just a straight transfer. A year ago before that, there was a DeFi summer. It was winter here in New Zealand. Um, but again, same thing. Uh, if you wanted to participate in Ethereum DeFi, you were spending $100, right, just to approve an, a transaction on mm -hmm. MetaMask. And so long term, that's untenable. And that's going to price out future growth from people coming in. And it's going to put a wall around the early adopters that are still spending ETH like they bought it for pennies uh, per ETH, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's no good. So moving forward, when sharding hits, then because the volume that's possible can go through, you know, Yuga Labs Mint should be able to come through in a couple minutes compared to half a day. Uh, and that means that if you want to wait a couple minutes, then you'll be back down to... Uh, back down to paying a, a reasonable fee. Um, and so I think Ethereum's actually been pretty quiet presently. Uh, if, yeah, it has. If you're just doing a transfer, and definitely <clears throat> if you watch the gas fees chart uh, and you tune in at the right time of day, you, you can get a very reasonable like $1 or less uh, transfer. Um, but you're right, the proof of stake is not going to affect the fees because if everyone wants to use Ethereum, they're going to charge more. Uh, and uh, now in the staking side of things, the miners aren't going to get the fee. Now miners are called validators, right? Mm -hmm. And they chuck up all their GPUs on TradeMe and hope that they're worth something. <laughs> Don't, to anyone listening, do not buy any GPUs uh, <laughs> secondhand. They, they might have been used for mining and they're probably spent. Yeah. Um, but it goes to the validators, right? Yeah. Uh, and so for ETH, you're going to need 32 ETH um, to validate. I looked at the numbers this morning. There are 400,000 validators right now, 400,000, which is a massive number. Um, so is that, that is that on Beacon? That is in the ETH 2.0 contract. Nice. Um, and yeah, so Beacon Chain uh, is keeping track and registering all the validators. 
that's 13 million staked ether, uh, which at today's price is about $20 billion. That's with a B. Uh, and so the scale is enormous uh, of what they're trying to accomplish here. Um, now that's, that's the number of validators. So hopefully what we're gonna see is ETH today has 5,000 full nodes um, distributed globally, which maybe doesn't seem like that much. Maybe it does if you're a decentralized, uh, dis sorry, a distributed systems researcher, mm. uh, then that is a ton of nodes to keep track of, but still. Um, I also looked it up. Uh, New Zealand has seven that are currently pinging home. Seven nodes. Seven full <laughs> nodes, okay. Um, and so hopefully the difference between 400,000 validators and 5,000 nodes means that many of those people that have 32 ETH staked will now be able to essentially be a, a full node service. Hmm. Um, the bottleneck with the full nodes is that you need a lot of hardware to do it. Uh, and so we've also seen, you know, one of the criticisms, people going to cloud providers to do it for them. Um, and, you know, the reason is you need like 16 gigs of RAM in your PC to do it. It has to always be on high speed internet and so on. And so, yeah, if you can do it in the cloud, do it in the cloud. Um, so hopefully after the switch, you know, the hardware requirements are no more. And we're going to see a lot more people become validators. That's going to change the game as well, right? Because, you know, it, that means, you know, the, the business of mining is all about el electricity consumption and getting it as cheap as possible and maintaining your mining rigs. A lot of that's going to fall away. And, you know, I, I've read that a, a lot of miners right now are struggling to cover costs. And they have to sell, you know, the the tokens they've they've mined, whether it's Bitcoin or or ETH or something else. Um, with proof of stake, they won't have to sell their ETH anymore, right? Like they can just hold it. They can just, yeah. It'll be the theory is it'll be deflationary proof of stake. Yes, for sure. So I mean, the economics are completely different, right? Because. As you, as you said, miners have to sell their coins to cover costs. Uh, you know, um, ASICs are the world of, of atoms. They're real things. You actually need, uh, you actually need motion of electrons to produce electricity. And you, gotta, you gotta pay for that service. Uh, and so <laughs> the staking side, I mean, you can have 32 ETH in a validator and you might, you might be paying zero infrastructure if somebody else is staking it for you. Right, you might have only paid a few bucks to send that ETH out, and then, like you say, you can sit back and hopefully collect more than five percent. Let's say as a round number, mm -hmm. um, probably it's you're looking more like at ten at least in the beginning. Yeah, I've seen um, that. And and you're right, your your overheads there are zero. You know, your uh, your fixed cost up front is thirty two ETH, which depending on when you bought it, you know, is maybe let's say ten to twenty to thirty grand or something. Uh, and and that's it. Whereas on the mining side of things, I mean, you might have to relocate someday. You might need to replace your miners, uh, right? You're fighting thermodynamics the whole time uh, with things melting and you need cooling and all, all of this. So from that point of view, staking looks super attractive. And I've read the amount of ETH that's going to be mined under POS is going to drop. Which could be, which could be, will, will likely be deflationary as well. 
because that'll yeah. reduce the amount of supply each year. Yeah, that's a good point about the deflationary piece there. Uh, and so I think right now ETH is, uh, you see different estimates at different times. This is another criticism uh, is that you don't know. But ETH is probably around zero right now. Sometimes uh, after the latest fee change, which meant that half the ETH gets burnt in your transaction fee and the other half goes to the miners. So after that change, the burnt ETH is almost balancing out the new freshly issued ETH, right? And so that's the new ETH coming into the system and the ETH going out into the ether that it's never going to come back. Uh, and if that's at zero, then we're at a zero percent inflation, deflation. What do you call it when it's when it's zero? You call it constant, I guess? I guess so. Um, now, if the ETH going out um, is burnt more than the freshly issued ETH coming in from the validators, uh, then you're in a deflationary scenario, which I guess we haven't seen before. Uh, and so, I mean... That will be, yeah, just one more thing to keep an eye out for. <laughs> no financial advice. No, not, not, <laughs> not financial advice. You know, I'll say that um, people criticize ETH because of uh, this idea of sound money. You know, and they say, oh, ETH isn't sound money. It's had changes in monetary policy. And my point of view is that ETH has never, this is ETH, not Ethereum, right, the token. ETH has never tried to be sound money. That's, that's my point of view is that, uh, ETH never wanted to build a new monetary system and trick anyone into uh, into thinking that it was going to displace something like Bitcoin in that sense. You know, that's that's kind of always been my point of view. Um, and the idea of having inflationary tokenomics versus constant or flat or or deflationary. I mean, I guess that's maybe a topic for another day. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean. Like we're fairly early Bitcoin adopters, at least crypto adopters. And even with Bitcoin, you know, they're completely different use cases comparing it to Ethereum. Um, yeah, I agree. Ethereum, I always thought Ethereum as being um, a global smart contract network and people speculating on the price of ETH pre POS was just, yeah, speculative, but now that you've, you've got POS, you can actually run some traditional, you know, corporate finance models on how much ETH could be worth. Because you you can almost estimate your prob your chances of, of um, mining ETH under POS, and then also resultingly your, your chances of earning transaction fees. And then you can also calculate the amount of new ETH being mined each year um, yeah, that's definitely taking us to traditional corporate finance territory. And then we have the cost of transactions. I agree. It's, it's, um, it's really just the market pricing, the value of the network at that particular time. Um, and then I'm just reminded of Roger Ver, just cause I, I love Roger Ver. Um, he, he's a traditionalist. You don't hear that too often. He, he's he's um, one of the people who got me into Bitcoin. Um, yeah, he was always complaining about block size and Bitcoin um, and how Bitcoin was, you know, not becoming what Satoshi had envisioned. Um, we, and Roger always saw Bitcoin as being, you know, peer-to-peer -peer cash that can be transferred 
um, cheaply. Um, but actually, I think, yeah, these different protocols, whether it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, they all have different valuable use cases and utility. Um, and I think Ethereum is just one different use case to, to Bitcoin and, B and Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, I mean, Roger Veer, what an interesting dude. Like, uh, I, I also got nothing against Roger Veer and his, his Bcash crusade. Uh, although it, it seems like he could have handled Mt. Gox a lot better based on uh, the stories that, that have come out. But uh, he's sort of, he's come back online a small bit lately uh, after retreating. I mean, I guess he took it pretty hard when during the last sort of bull run times, <laughs> as, as Bcash didn't appreciate as much as Bitcoin. He, he did sell. He definitely put his money with, where his mouth was. But it would have been painful selling all that Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, uh, and so, I mean, you got to give him credit for that, right? For, for picking a side and for publicly saying it. And then, as you say, yeah, selling into it. And, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those things you can look at the chart and you can see where Roger sold into it. Like... <laughs> pumped up the, propped up the price. Is anything else on, uh, what else have you been following lately? Um, I have to give a shout out to some of my clients um, here in New Zealand. They're Web3, um, Web3 clients. I would say world leading, um, like Dan Gillespie, Aaron McDonald from Centrality. Um, they have a team behind, um, you know, like Alter State Machine, they have a team behind uh, the new Futureverse, um, which is um, going to be an open metaverse. Yeah, what, what do you know? We've had these words come up on the pod before, uh, ASM and uh, Fluffs. What do you know about uh, Futureverse? Yeah, and they're also the team behind um, Non-Fungible Labs, which is Fluff World. Um, uh, I mean, what can I say without breaching confidence? They're, uh, give um, us some alpha, come on. They're... They're going to, yeah, I think they're going to change the world. Um, they've got an open metaverse manifesto that's public. There's tens of thousands of people signed up to it. And they've got um, a white paper on the Futureverse, which is the white paper on how um, they see their metaverse um, evolving. Um, and you can look into it and it's it goes into how uh, their their own protocol, which is going to be, called mycelium it's gonna run on um, the mycelium token um, there'll be decentralized identity built in um, it'll be a whole different ecosystem um, and then it's going to be geared towards creation um, the creator economy um, you'll see a lot of the non-fungible labs fluff world and nfts moving migrating there i, I would suspect same with altered state machine um, and I, I've read, well, I, I saw in, on, online that they've already partnered with um, Ripple Labs and their community. Yeah, I saw that one. Um, so I, I, I'm super bullish on their, on their project. What do you reckon about Metaverse as a, as a thing? Is it legit? Is it, gonna, uh, like, is it going to tempt teenagers to invest time and energy and eventually money and like, go to school to learn about how to participate in this stuff? Is it going to stick around? The research that you see from, you know, like really big, really big names like McKinsey, you know, Time Magazine, for example, they forecast the metaverse industry to be, you know, like 
I think in the, the trillions in the in the really near future. Um, I think it's going to be because right now you've got, um, I guess, two conflicting paradigms, which is the the closed metaverse, which is essentially you know the Web two style metaverse that Meta is trying to build with Horizon Worlds, um, and then you've got the open metaverse, which is built on open source software, which is what um, you know, Futureverse and um, you know, and their partners are trying to build. Um, I see, I, I see multiple metaverses in the future, um, just because I, I see them as um, just unique digital environments for people to, you know, to socialize, to you know, do commerce, um, and you know, just like we have multiple websites right now, I think there'll be multiple metaverses with conflicting, you know, using conflicting paradigms. Um, do I see adoption? I, I don't think adoption will be fast just because I think you're looking at behavioral evolution um, driving metaverse adoption. And you, you talk about, you know, I'm guessing we're both millennials. I'm a millennial. And, I, you know, I, I'd probably call myself almost a digital native. But then the generation after us. Almost, you're holding back. <laughs> you, you know what an old phone is. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen checks before. <laughs> I've never used one. Okay. <laughs> and then the generation after us, Gen Z, they're undoubtedly digitally native. However, I, even I, just from my anecdotal research, I don't think they'll be the ones driving metaverse adoption. I think it'll be the generation after them who have had have had no existence other than fast, you know, fast mobile internet, who have had no existence other than, you know, like top class mobile devices, who are probably going to be early, like really early um, mainstream adopters of, of AR, VR devices. I think they're going to be the ones who will be driving um, metaverse adoption. Um, but you, you see the businesses you know, like Nike, you see them, you know, experimenting with, you know, proto metaverses now. I don't, I don't think they're quite metaverses yet, but you see them experimenting with these types of environments now because they're almost paving the way for when real metaverses will be in place. Um, but yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a crazy good point about like behavioral, uh, behavioral adaptation uh, in order to drive adoption. Um, as an older millennial, the way I see it is that uh, I'm super skeptical. I'm just like, I'm just like, look at it and I'm like, it's not good enough. I'm like, it's, it's not, it's not going to work. But, but then like, I know that I'm not going to dedicate my time to it, but I also have to realize that other future generations are going to dedicate their time to other things, right? Like, I even like I've completely missed TikTok, even though I'm aware of it, right? And I, I see how other people are smashing it with TikTok, and I just know that I'm not. Even though I see it, I know I'm not going to. So like, I'm already a lost cause, right? Like, like I, I'm already out. What we have now is enough of a metaverse for me. Um, one thing I've seen that I keep, or one thing that I keep coming back to personally from a like computer science perspective, it's just the compute required to immerse someone in a 3D virtual world. Um, and this is where 
this is where Zuckerberg and Meta are definitely leading. And they also have, you know, they can write the checks in order to get through this tough time of developing these things. And so um, you can hear, I think it was on uh, Lex Friedman Zuckerberg talking about what they're doing at Meta and how they're, they're really concentrating on the user experience. But they're doing it from first principles, like real human research involved in order to improve the experience and, and build it up that way. And I see like blockchain NFT projects and, you know, like half of them are coming at it from a dollar sign perspective. Uh, half of them are, half of the remainder are hacking. Uh, half of the remainder, you know, want to build like a, a long-term open thing that, you know, could last. And, and, you know, there's not that many left, I think, that are going to be able to compete with someone like Meta and the scale of, of the operations that, that they're doing. And like one example from that chat that stands out is um, if you think about the last time you wore a VR headset, right? <laughs> they're tricky, right? They're awkward, they're clunky, they're huge. Like the, the power drain is massive. Your phone is heavy. You don't want your phone sitting in front of your eyes and like all of, all of these things. Uh, and so they're really trying to address all that, including things like uh, eye contact. So these interviews work best in person because we can share the actual lived experience together. And like that sounds a bit corny, but it's, it's the truth. And you can like read micro expressions from people that you're interacting with. You don't get that on, on, on Zoom. And, you know, what's missing from Zoom, as terrific as video chat is, is that you don't have eye contact. You look at the camera. You look back, you look at the camera, you look back. <laughs> you like, I missed it, I missed it. Were you looking? I can't, I can't tell. Uh, and so like this simple problem is something that Meta is attempting to solve, you know, using various things like eye tracking and stuff so that you can tell when an avatar is looking at you. And, and so I think that's where I put my money if I had to talk about where the state of Metaverse is, is right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you make some excellent points. Um, and you'd know more about the technology than me. Um, I think, I, I think um, Zuck, Zuck got some really bad press when he, you know, he, re some, he released some, some demos of, um, of Horizon. And I think people were really criticizing the avatars um, and the quality of the avatars. But um, I have to hand it to him. It's not easy to build a metaverse, which is, you know, 24-7, it's going to be, you know, it's going to host potentially millions of people at any one time. It's not easy to run that kind of computing power, <laughs> uh, you know, on a consistent basis. Yeah. Are you talking about the, the very recent release he had? Where, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a funny looking <laughs> dude to begin with, right? <laughs> your, your point about TikTok is great as well, because, you know, I miss the boat on TikTok. It's not my generation, like, you know, we're probably the Facebook, early Facebook adopters, you know, maybe we got into Instagram as well. But I think a lot of these media platforms are generational. And I think there'll be another platform after TikTok who will capture the next generation. And so I think this type of generational um, technology like metaverses, I think it's going to be a generational thing. The um, are you familiar with Ready Player One? Love that movie. Yeah, so I think they did such a 
beautiful job on that film. Um, uh, it's a great story, uh, you know, sci-fi story from book as well. Um, and so that's, that's my, that's my metaverse right there. That's how, that's how I see it playing out. Uh, dystopian world, um, corporate metaverse, you know, good luck. <laughs> I can see that like you've got digitally native people. Have you, have you seen that movie? Um, Wally? I haven't. No, I know of it though. So you've got digitally native people right now, and then you've got digitally exclusive people who live purely on the internet. And you know, in the movie Wally, and I think even with um, Ready Player One, you've got people who spend their entire existence in the metaverse or or online, um, and they've become you know like almost physically redundant. So. Um, you know, hopefully we don't get there. Um, hopefully the metaverse doesn't, you know, doesn't cause it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, let's let's not become physically redundant. <laughs> All right, Brian, let's uh, call it there. Thank you very much for coming in. And uh, we'll do a roundtable again sometime. Cool. Thanks for having me, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers.